Loving Father, we pray, Lord, that um, you would speak to us from your word, that uh, you would open our hearts to understand what you would have us do, and that you would move us to actually do something in response to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the books that we used to read our kids uh, when they were smaller, and maybe your parents read this to you, or you've read it to kids yourself, is a book called Herbert and Harry. Uh, bear with me. Herbert and Harry uh, were two brothers, they were inseparable. Uh, one day they went fishing in their boat, they pulled up a treasure chest in their fishing net. They argued about whose treasure it would be, and Herbert pushed Harry into the ocean off the boat in the middle of the sea. Harry was able to swim to shore, he survived, uh, which is good, but Herbert rowed the boat as fast and as far away as he possibly could. When he landed the boat, he put the treasure onto his shoulder and he walked into the forest and walked and walked and night fell and he hid the treasure under a tree and he lay awake all night, worried that Harry or somebody else would come for the treasure. Uh, then the next day, he carried the treasure into the lonely mountains and for days and days, he walked up and down the mountains and up, finally, the highest mountain in the land. But still he couldn't sleep for worry that someone might come and take the treasure. So he, for years, he dug under the mountain and he dug right down into the mountain and he hid the treasure there and rolled a big rock over the entrance, but still he couldn't sleep for worry that someone would take his treasure. So he bought guns and cannons and he fortified the mountain, uh, but he was still never able to sleep for fear that someone would come and take the treasure. So in the final picture of Herbert in the book, he's an old man sitting alone on the mountaintop with his guns guarding his treasure. Meanwhile, Harry had no treasure, but he got on with his life and he always slept soundly every night. And in the final picture of Harry in the book, he's an old man sitting in his home with happy grandchildren on his knees and around him on the couch as he reads them a book. So the story is a little moral fable about the dangers of greed. And it really, uh, it seems to be aimed at the parents, uh, really, because it basically asks the reader, what is your treasure and what do you value and what are you building in this life, which means where is your heart? And the book of Haggai asks similar questions of us and it urges a better answer than Herbert's answer, I'm living for material treasure. It also urges a better answer than Harry's answer, I'm living for earthly family, as good as earthly family is. The book of Haggai asks us, what should the great cause of our lives be? What should we be looking to build in this life? Uh, so, as Justine mentioned, we're uh, on the way up in our sermon series uh, today. Haggai is about building. Um, as we've heard in the series, we're talking about the exile and Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 BC. Uh, most of the people who weren't killed were taken to, into exile in Babylon. Uh, they were there for about 50 years, but in 538 BC, the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire and King Cyrus allowed the Jews to go home to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and their temple, and some of them went home. And they laid the foundations of this temple in, a, in a, a, about 538 BC, but then the work stalled. They didn't get it finished. And we learn from the book of Ezra that there was opposition from the neighbours, mainly Samaritans, uh, there was bureaucratic red tape, there was discouragement, and so the work stopped. 
Haggai pops up at about 520 BC, about 18 years after they'd returned, to tell them to get on with it, because it's God's work that they were put there to do. So as you can see, Haggai is a short book, it has four prophecies given just over a four-month period, and it has a happy ending, which is a refreshing change from where we've come to on the way down. There is a challenge for us as well in this book, I think, because God is also calling us to do His work today. And the question really is, what, what is your cause? What are you doing in your life? So the first word uh, in Hag Haggai is chapter 1, and it is an awakening word. It's always been a danger for God's people to get lazy and sleepy and apathetic. Uh, we can get to the point where we think, oh well, I'm saved, I'm okay, uh, I can live with this. And we sort of relax into a tolerable mediocrity in our lives as Christians. In other words, we go off the boil. Uh, in Haggai, God puts his finger on the procrastination of his people in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Funny, isn't it? Because they'd already laid the foundations and then they'd been sitting around for 17 or so years. They would have had reasons and justifications for their procrastination. In Ezra chapter 4, it says the neighbours had appealed to the emperor who, and succeeded in getting a stop work order on the Jerusalem temple, a little bit like someone protesting against the DA for what you want to do on your house and the council saying, okay, you've got to stop now. Uh, very frustrating. So there was official opposition, but Haggai points to something happening in the hearts of God's people that was the real obstacle. So in verse 4, uh, it says, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? So that's a fairly cutting question. They had got so used to living outside the, uh, alongside the ruins of God's temple that they no longer saw the, the, this heap of ruins, which is supposed to be God's house, as the tragedy and the crying need that it really was. They'd forgotten the reason they'd returned to Jerusalem and they'd become totally distracted by feathering their own nests, that is, building their own nice houses for themselves. Perhaps we can relate to that sort of distraction, because after all, we all want to set ourselves up in life comfortably. We all want what we want in life. We want to be set up. And so it, it easily becomes the main game that I want to set myself up in life in one way or another, or very many ways. And God's work is forgotten, or it becomes secondary, or when I've set myself up, then I'll get on with God's work is the attitude we often have. And I suppose, it, could our interest in feathering our own nests be more vividly displayed than the Aussie obsession with the property market and with home renovation shows? I mean, they are all about feathering your own nest, um, getting the dream home, then fixing it up so it's just the way that you want it and it's perfect, and then once you've done that, hopefully you've got enough money, you buy an investment property and on you go, and it's all about just setting yourself up. And of course, that's what life is about for many, many people. It's just, why wouldn't I just feather my own nest? There's nothing else to live for. And God's people are caught up in that as well. And of course, if it's not buying and building houses, then it's building up your superannuation balance if you're of a certain age, or building the perfect family if you're of a certain age, or building a collection of great experiences. Yes, I've been there. Yes, I've done that. Yes, I've done this. Uh, my life is complete. Or building your career, or finding true love, all ways of sort of feathering your nest. And these can all become the main thing and distract us from the cause that we're called to as the people of God in this world. So God says through Haggai, you people need to reflect on your ways. 
In other words, what are you doing? Verse 5 and verse 7, he urges them, give careful thought to your ways. What are you living for and how is that working out for you? And he points out that they're not actually experiencing all that much blessing. Verse 6, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. In other words, you are spending your lives feathering your nests, but you're not all that satisfied, are you? It's not actually going that well for you, is it? Verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away, says God. Why? Because you're not doing what I put you here to do, is the answer. God was actually withholding blessing from his people in order to prompt reflection and they were kind of suffering in a way, there was a drought, they were kind of thinking it's not going right, but they still needed a prophet to come to them and say, hey, wake up, there's a reason that all of this is happening. Sometimes Christians also need to reflect, perhaps on why our Christian lives are not working as they should. Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So God does discipline us, he does withhold things from us in order to wake us up. Sometimes we need to give careful thought to our ways. Why aren't we receiving more blessing in return for our faith, we might ask? Well, maybe it's because we're not actually investing much in God. Maybe we're very distracted, feathering our own nests and God's withholding and he's waiting and he's saying, hey, wake up. This is not to say that every time something goes wrong in your life, it's because you're being unfaithful to God. It's not always a kind of one-to-one relationship. But I'm sure it's true that we often reap little in our Christian lives because we sow so little in our Christian lives. In Haggai, there's a wonderful response to this uh, message Uh, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the priest, they lead the way, and it says, all the people repented and obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and feared the Lord. They give themselves back to God's word at work, they get back to building the temple, despite the ban, they just start building anyway, and if you read Ezra, they they actually appeal to the emperor and fight the red tape, and they win a, a bureaucratic battle as well, which is wonderful, and God says to them in verse 13, I am with you, because you've reapplied yourself to the work that I've given you to do. Now, what does it look like for us as Christians to give ourselves more fully fully to God's work? Well, in Haggai's time, it was pretty obvious what it involved. They had to build an actual temple. Uh, The temple was the centre of God's kingdom and the centre of God's presence with his people. If the temple was in ruin, the kingdom was in ruins. So, it was obvious what they needed to do. When Jesus came, as we read in John chapter 2, he basically said, I am the temple. I am the place where God dwells among you. Come to me and you come to God. My resurrection will establish God's permanent presence with his people. That's what Jesus said. And as Christ dwells with his people through the Spirit, uh, in the New Testament, it says the Christian church is, uh, is God's temple in a sense. Not the church building, but the people of God is his temple. It's where God dwells uh, now in the New Covenant. So, God's work now is to build His church. What does He want us to be on about? Um, Calling people to join with Christ, building His church, 
building Christians up in Christ, building the church of God. This is the work that the New Testament says to Christians, this is what God wants you to do. Uh, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of people. Um, He says, go and make disciples of all nations. The Apostle Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we'll grow up into maturity in Christ as each part does its work. So the work is to build the people of God, to build the church. Uh, And this is not just work for ministers and missionaries, everybody else watches while they build the church. No, there is real work for every Christian to do, investing ourselves in God's people, in God's church, working on each other, spreading the gospel, just showing up to church and being part of what God is doing here. This is all the work of building God's church. It's the work that God has given us to do. So Haggai's first word was an awakening word to a sleepy, lazy, procrastinating people who were just kind of comfortable and not realising that it could be much better if they just were more faithful to God. Perhaps it needs to wake us up as well. The second word is a strengthening word because they've they've responded, they've repented, they've got on with the work and God now speaks to strengthen them. Because one factor... um, that those who invest in God's work, work need to deal with, sometimes, is discouragement. We might work faithfully in doing what God wants us to do, but what's produced sometimes kind of looks a little bit average. And God points to potential discour- discouragement in Haggai's time, uh, because what they were building didn't compare to Solomon's temple in the glory days. Verse 3, God says, does it not seem to you like nothing? Look at the Look at the foundation of what you're building and there are some old-timers there who could remember the wonderful Solomon's temple. Does this not look a little bit pathetic to you? And it might be the same for us in the church today. Um, Old-timers might look at the church today and they might think, ah, much better in my day. Or we might compare our church to the church down the road and think, oh, that's, that's wonderful down there. Or we might see the ugly features of our church and we might think, gee, that's not great, is it? You know, you hang around a church long enough, get to know the people long enough, you think, well, that's really not very good. There's plenty of features like that in our church, believe it or not. We try to build well, but we wish we could produce something better in the church. God says to the Jews in verse 4, be strong and work, for I am with you. He promises present help, even if there's discouraging features of what they're doing and he's assuring his people that even if things don't look outwardly impressive the spiritual reality is that God was present Uh, verse 5 this is what God promised Israel from the very start what's going to set you apart as my people is the fact that I am with you and so in Haggai's time my spirit remains among you do not fear and the new covenant church is assured of the same thing the presence of God we may not look like much on the outside but God is here with us. That's why we keep going with the work. We keep trying because God is present. We know that and we believe it. And God has future plans that guarantee a glorious finished product for the church. Uh, In verses 6 to 9, he promises that he'll shake heaven and earth and he'll shake the nations and he'll cause blessing to rain down on his house. And he says, I will fill this, this house with glory. In verse 8, he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. In other words, don't worry if what you're building right now doesn't look that great, I will bring it in time. Uh, Verse 9, the glory of this, this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house and in this place I will grant peace. 
And that's a promise that's fulfilled in Christ. John chapter 2, as we read, when he entered the old temple, uh, this was fulfilled. And then when he became the new temple, he brought greater glory and peace to that place than the world had yet known. And one day that will be brought to complete fulfillment in the church of God. So it doesn't matter if what we're investing in now looks a little bit unimpressive to the human eye. God is with us. And he will take this, his people, and he will make it glorious. Uh, Believe it or not, he's going to make us together glorious one day. And that means when we consider what we're going to give our lives to, what cause are you going to give your life to? Yes, you could give all your energy to feathering your own nest, uh, nothing for God, and it is guaranteed to come to nothing. Or you could choose to invest in what God is building, what God is aiming towards, that is his church and the silver is God's and the gold is God's and one day when Christ returns, he's going to pour it all in to his people, his church and that's where we should be investing ourselves. That's where God is invested. So if you're invested in God's work, here is a strengthening word. Don't be discouraged. Your time, your money, your efforts are going exactly where they are best used and you are storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. The third word that Haggai gives is a promising word um, and the feature of this third prophecy is the phrase, from this day on. So God is promising a fresh start. He describes the defilement of his people up until this point. Uh, In the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was very easy to be defiled, that is to become unclean, very hard to then be cleansed and things had come to such a point that the whole nation had become defiled and the temple had become defiled, and there was no way of them being cleansed anymore, so God just wiped it all away. But now they were rebuilding, and the rebuilders themselves had rededicated themselves to serving God, and so they had a fresh start and a shot at blessing once again. And verse 19, uh, at the end of that section, says, from this day on, I will bless you, from this day on. We're reminded in Haggai that in the Old Covenant you very easily become unclean. You just touch a dead body and you're suddenly unclean. Uh, But you couldn't become clean by touching a consecrated body. It sort of really mostly worked one way. It's easy to become unclean, very hard to become clean again. But what happened with Jesus? Well, Jesus touched lepers unclean and he touched dead bodies unclean. And did they make him unclean? No, he made them clean. He made the lepers clean. He raised the dead, the bodies from the dead. Um, and so it kind of went the other way with Jesus, which is remarkable. Jesus is able to give fresh starts to make us clean in a way that nothing ever could in Haggai's time. They were very hard to come by fresh starts in Haggai's time. But we come to Jesus and we get a fresh start every time. His touch makes us clean and we get fresh shots at blessing continually. And God promises through Haggai, from this day on, I will bless you. And we are now living in that new blessing in Christ. But we have to keep coming to him for it. And investing in that blessing, um, it doesn't drop into our laps without faith. So that's a very encouraging promise there, that we can be cleansed and blessed in Christ. From this day on, I I will bless you. And that's what we're experiencing. The last word is a defining word, uh, which is a personal prophecy to Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David. And so this is just that last paragraph. It sounds very apocalyptic, very end of the world. 
God promises to overthrow the whole created order and all human power structures and instead establish Zerubbabel, that is the line of David, and God would make him like his signet ring, he, that is he would rule through him. So this really defines where the hopes of blessing are centred. They are centred around this kingly line, which ultimately means Jesus Christ. If we are going to build God's people, if we're going to give ourselves to the work of building God's church, the task is to bring people under the rule of Christ. Uh, as we evangelise, we are calling people under the rule of Christ. As we build each other up, we're pulling each other further under the rule of Christ. And that's what kingdom work means. And we need to be clear on that because you think, oh, I'm going to give myself to the work of the church. What does that mean? Well, the centre of it is bringing people under the rule of Christ. You might help paint the walls of the building or you might help with the earthly organisation of things at church. But what's at the centre of, of it all is bringing people under the rule of the King that God has established. And that now is Jesus Christ in the line of Zerubbabel, in the line of David. So that's God's work. I feel like I've kind of lost the challenge because we've gone all the way through the, the four words, but um, we've reached the end now. And I just want to finish by saying, Jesus noted how strongly each of us is pulled towards setting ourselves up in the world. You know, many of you, kind of, you're doing uni or you're at school or you're starting out in a career or something and you're thinking, how can I get set up in the world? Maybe you're not thinking about that, but many of you are. And we get very worried about how we're going to set up, get set up. Uh, and Jesus said, yes, you get worried about what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? And we might add to that, okay, how am I going to get a house? Or how am I going to afford this? How am I going to set myself up? Um, what is my life going to look like? And Jesus says, the whole world is running after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But then he says, you, God's people, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well he's given us a greater cause we can trust him for all the other stuff he says focus on the greater cause he has given us work to do kingdom work spiritual work and there's a lot of work to do to build God's church the challenge here is the question could it be that we are spiritually impoverished because we aren't investing in that work are we too distracted by the feathering of our own nests Haggai says, well, maybe it's true. Give careful thought to your ways. Uh, that's the challenge. So there's a prayer at the bottom of the outline and I'll lead us in that prayer now. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world in whom you offer us your presence and blessing. I am sorry that I am so easily distracted by selfish worldly concern, uh, causes. Thank you for the privilege of involvement in the work of building your church. Please help me to give more of myself to the cause of your kingdom and glory, where true blessing is found from now on. In Jesus' name, amen.